ان الحمد لله نحمده ونستعينه ونستغفره ونعوذ بالله من شرور انفسنا وسيئات اعمالنا من يهده الله فلا مضل له ومن يضلل فلا هادي له واشهد ان لا اله الا الله وحده لا شريك له واشهد ان محمدا عبده ورسوله اما بعد so we've been going through kashf al-shubuhat the introduction of it and we've arrived at the statement of the author fa idha arafta anna juhal al-kuffar ya'rifuna dhalika fal'ajab mimman yadda'i al-islam wa huwa la ya'rifu min tafsir hadhihi al-kalima ma 'arafahu juhal al-kuffar بل يظن أن ذلك هو التلفظ بحروفها من غير اعتقاد القلب لشيء من المعاني والحاذق منهم يظن أن معناها لا يخلق ولا يرزق إلا الله ولا يدبر الأمر إلا الله فلا خير في رجل جهال الكفار أعلم منه بمعنى لا إله إلا الله so you remember in the previous sections we were discussing the fact that the mushrikun at the time of the Prophet wasallam, they acknowledged ar-rububiyyah. They acknowledged that Allah is the creator, the provider, the sustainer. And their argument with the Prophet wasallam was not regarding those affairs. Just like the previous prophets and messengers, the argument their people had against them was not on these affairs, was not upon is Allah the creator, is Allah the sustainer, is Allah the provider, is Allah the one who gives life and death. These were not the points of contention. The kuffar at the time of the prophet recognized these points and acknowledged these points and yet they were not Muslim because of something more than these points and that was al-uluhiyya that they were not singling out Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala with their worship so here the author says if you now understand then that the juhal of the kuffar the ignorant disbelievers that they even knew this. They knew that when the Prophet ﷺ was telling them to believe and to proclaim the Shahada, that the meaning of it was to abandon all other deities and to worship Allah alone. The kuffar, the juhal of the kuffar, they knew these affairs. So then the Shaykh says, how amazing it is that those who claim to be upon Islam, there are from them who do not know the explanation of this word, of this shahada, that which the ignorant kuffar even knew. Those ignorant kuffar, when it was said to them, قُولُوا لَا إِلَٰهَ إِلَّا اللَّهِ تُفْلِحُوا 
Say la ilaha illallah and you will be successful. They knew what was being requested of them. They knew what the purpose and meaning of la ilaha illallah required from them. That it was to abandon all other deities and to worship Allah alone. They knew that. And yet there are those who claim to be upon Islam and they do not know the explanation of this affair like the ignorant kuffar even did. Rather some of them, some of those who claim to be upon Islam, they may consider, they may think and claim that the purpose behind this Tawheed and the purpose behind La ilaha illallah is simply to say it, simply to pronounce and to utter those words, to say, Ashhadu an la ilaha illallah, without having any actualization of the meanings of it, without implementing and understanding the meanings of it. And we've mentioned before, the shahada, it is three things. The shahada is three things. It is not just to say it. That is only one thing. The other two, to understand the meanings of it, to believe in it to understand the meanings of it and to believe in it. And the third, to act upon it, to say it, to understand it and believe in it, and to act upon it. Three things. And yet some of them, it is as though they think the shahada is just the part about saying it. That as long as you say, La ilaha illallah, that's it, you've done it. You have proclaimed the shahada. You are upon the shahada. And you have no understanding of its meanings, no recognition of what tawheed is, no implementation of what is required of you. Then you are deficient, greatly deficient in your recognition of what the shahada is. And so he mentioned some of them, they consider that maybe it is simply to say it without having any belief in the heart of any of the meanings of it. In the explanation, فَإِنَّ أَبَا جَهَلْ وَأَضْرَابَهُ لَوْ يَعْلَمُونَ أَنَّ هَذَا هُوَ الْمُرَادِ لَمَا تَلَعْثَمُوا فِي قَوْلِهَا وَلَا نَازَعُوا if the kuffar, the mushrikun, at that time, if they understood and they recognized and they thought that the intention behind la ilaha illallah is just to say it without the understanding and the realization of the meanings or the implementation of them, then none of those mushrikun would have had any problem. They wouldn't have had any problem. If it was just to say la ilaha illallah without the meanings or the practice of it, it would mean they can carry on worshipping there. 
idols and just say la ilaha illallah, that wouldn't have been a problem for them. It indicates they knew that saying la ilaha illallah wasn't just about the saying of it. It was the meanings behind it and the practice of it. That you have to then abandon all of these other deities and worship Allah alone. They knew that. That's why they had the issue with the Prophet ﷺ. When he said to them, قُولُوا لَا إِلَهَ إِلَّا اللَّهِ تُفْلِحُوا They said, أَجَعِلَ الْآلِهَةَ إِلَهًا وَاحِدًا إِنَّ هَذَا لَشَيْنْ عُجَابٍ Is he making all of our deities into one? That's something strange. That's something not right. So they knew that the shahada is not just about saying it. There's a lot more involved with it. They knew that. And that's why they refused. And they had their contention with the Prophet ﷺ. Yet some of these people now who claim to be upon Islam, they don't seem to recognize this reality. They seem to think that the shahada is just to say la ilaha illallah and that's it. Meaning of it, the aqidah behind it, the tawheed underlying it, the implementation and practice of it, none of that is in the frame. Just say it, la ilaha illallah and you're done. And so the shaykh highlights how uh, incorrect and how deviated this type of understanding of the people is, that they think the shahada is just to say it, and you have no recognition of the tawheed that goes with it, underpins it, and the practice and the implementation required from it, they think it is just to say la ilaha illallah. And then he quotes, or he goes on to mention, that some of them, they may think that the meaning is, that there is no creator except Allah, and that there is no provider except Allah, and that there is nobody who disposes of the affairs except Allah, some of them may give you that explanation. And if they give you that explanation, then all they've done is give you the explanation of Tawheed. Ar-Rububiyyah. Something that even the Juhal of the Kuffar acknowledged and recognized in you. So what has this person given you? That you say to him, what is the meaning of La ilaha illallah? He says it is to believe in Allah and to believe Allah is the creator, to believe Allah is the provider, to believe Allah controls all the affairs. And he thinks he's giving a good explanation by saying those things to you, thinking this is Tawheed, to believe Allah is the creator, the provider, the sustainer. Of course it is, but it is missing the other aspects that are crucial to then worship him alone. Not to say that you believe Allah is the only provider, creator, sustainer, but then go and worship others and call upon the dead in their graves. So there is a key point to be understood. فَلَا خَيْرَ فِي رَجُلٍ جُهَالُ الْكُفَّارِ أَعْلَمُ مِنْهُ بِمَعْنَ لَا إِلَهَ إِلَّا اللَّهِ So there is no goodness in a man who even the juhal of the kuffar are more knowledgeable than him, more knowledgeable than him, than the meaning of la ilaha illallah. 
No goodness in such an individual. That is the least that can be said. A person who has no recognition and understanding of the reality of Tawheed, the reality of the Shahada, and he thinks it just means that there's no creator, there's no provider, there's no sustainer except Allah. And there's no one who gives life and death except Allah. And there's nobody who controls everything except Allah. That is what you will find when you go to some of them. Now, when you go to the Jama'atul Tabligh and others and you ask them, what is the definition of Tawheed? What is the definition of La ilaha illallah? That's the type of thing you will find from many of them. It is to believe Allah is the creator. It is to believe Allah is the provider. It is to believe Allah controls everything alone. These are the types of things they will tell you. And they will not go into the details of the reality of al-uluhiyyah, which is the core aspect of where the actual differing occurred between the mushrikun and their prophets and messengers. And why is it, you may think, why is it that people won't do that? Why is it that the groups of deviation, some of them, they have a reluctance to go into the affairs of al-uluhiyah? Why would they want to stick to just recognizing and speaking of al-rububiyah, but not going into details of al-uluhiyah? Why? They want to gather the people. They feel the splitting. Because when you start going into the details of al-uluhiyyah, that's what brings about and brings into light the misguidances of the people, that they are calling upon the dead at the graves. They are calling upon and wiping these so-called awliya. They are calling upon even crocodiles and whatever it might be in certain places, Muslims as they proclaim to be. They are doing all of these things everywhere. When you start going into the details of al-uluhiyah, all of a sudden you expose all of this misguidance occurring. But al-rububiyah, even the ones who go and call upon crocodiles and whatever it might be, even they, Allah, ilaha illallah, Allah, Allah. Even they will say that. They go and call upon the dead in their graves, making dua to them. They will say, of course, La ilaha illallah. Of course, La ilaha illallah. Allah is the creator, the provider. Allah is the one who gives life and death. Allah is the one who controls everything. Even they will say that to you. So that amount is okay for them. But when you go into the details, the reality of Tawheed, then it suddenly starts exposing all of those misguidances that they are upon with their intercession with the dead and all of the other things that they do. So then, إِذَا عَرَفْتَ مَا قُلْتُ لَكَ مَعْرِفَةَ قَلْبٍ That if you now understand what I've said to you, the Shaykh says, if you now understand what I've said to you with a real deep understanding, a proper understanding, an understanding in reality, you understand now deeply, properly, with pondering over it. And 
and you now understand what that shirk is, the shirk alongside Allah that Allah said regarding it, indeed Allah does not forgive that you commit shirk alongside Him. Now you understand these affairs. وَعَرَفْتَ دِينَ اللَّهِ الَّذِي بُعِثَ بِهِ الرُّسُلُ مِنْ أَوَّلِهِمْ إِلَىٰ آخِرِهِمْ الَّذِي لَا يَقْبَلُ اللَّهُ مِنْ أَحَدٍ دِينًا سَوَاهُ وَعَرَفْتَ مَا أَصْبَحَ غَالِبُ النَّاسِ فِيهِ مِنَ الْجَهْلِ بِهَذَا So he says, if you now understand properly from your heart with understanding and comprehension what I've said to you, and you now recognize what the reality of this shirk is that Allah said regarding that He does not forgive that you commit shirk alongside Him, you now understand that is of course at the core of it in reference to Al-Uluhiyyah, associating partners alongside Allah, worshipping others alongside Allah. And you now know that the religion of Allah, the religion of Allah, which the messengers were sent with, from the first of them to the last of them, that which Allah will not accept any other religion from anyone besides it. And you know, what the majority of the people, what has become of them in the ignorance that they are upon. You now start to realize all of these affairs. You start to realize the level of ignorance people are upon in understanding Tawheed. You start to realize what the reality of the religion is that the prophets and messengers came with. The core of that da'wah being the uluhiyyah to single out Allah with all of your worship. So you start to recognize what is going on. You start to recognize these affairs. And when you do, then what happens? The Shaykh says, You are then, uh, you then benefit two benefits. There are then two benefits that you find. When you realize and recognize these affairs, there are two benefits you come across then. The first of them, Al-Ula, Al-Farahu, Bifadlillahi, Wa Birahmatihi, Kama Qala Ta'ala, Qul Bifadlillahi, Wa Birahmatihi, Fabithalika Falyafrahu, Huwa Khairun Mimma Yajma'oon. The first benefit is that you find a happiness, a great joy at this blessing and virtue of Allah and this mercy of Allah upon you. That you have understood these affairs, that you've understood the reality of La ilaha illallah, you've understood the meaning of the shahada. You understood the religion the prophets and messengers came with. You understood it is not just a rububiyyah, but there's far more to it than that. You understood all of these affairs. Then the first thing that you benefit is this joy at the virtue and the blessing and the mercy of Allah upon you that you have indeed understood.
That is a virtue and a blessing and a mercy from Allah upon you. Because how many are there out there who have not understood the reality of these affairs? And that's why the Shaykh quotes the ayah, قُلْ بِفَضْلِ Say by the, the virtue of Allah. And that some of the scholars have mentioned is in reference to what? What is this virtue of Allah? Some of them in their tafsir, they said it is Al-Islam. That the fadl of Allah, this virtue of Allah upon you is Islam. And birahmatihi and by his mercy upon you. And what is the mercy? Some of them said in their books of tafsir, mentioned by Ibn Abbas, the Rahma being mentioned here is the Quran. So say, by the religion of Islam, Allah has bestowed upon you. And this mercy of guidance through the Quran that has been sent to you. قُلْ بِفَضْلِ اللَّهِ وَبِرَحْمَتِهِ فَبِذَلِكَ فَلْيَفْرَحُوا هُوَ خَيْرٌ مِّمَّا يَجْمَعُونَ And with that, let them be joyous, and it is better than what they gather. So the fadl of Allah is Al-Islam, and the rahmah of Allah is the Qur'an, as per the tafsir of this ayah. And sometimes you may find that they mention it the other way around. Sometimes in the books of tafsir, you may see it the other way, where they say that the fadl of Allah is the Qur'an, and the rahmah of Allah is Al-Islam. But either way, either way, it is in reference to Islam and the Qur'an. The guidance that you've been given, this religion of Islam, that which was just mentioned a short while ago, Allah will not accept any other religion besides it. Islam. Indeed, the religion with Allah is Al-Islam. وَمَنْ يَبْتَغِي غَيْرَ الْإِسْلَامِ دِينًا فَلَنْ يُقْبَلَ مِنْهِ Whomsoever seeks a religion other than Islam, then it will not be accepted from him. So that is the first benefit you experience. The recognition of this great virtue of Allah upon you, and this great mercy of Allah upon you, the religion of Islam, the religion of Tawheed, the guidance with the Qur'an, the speech of Allah, you recognize that then. And secondly, وَأَفَادَكَ أَيْضًا الْخَوْفَ الْعَظِيمِ فَإِنَّكَ إِذَا عَرَفْتَ أَنَّ الْإِنسَانَ يَكْفُرْ بِكَلِمَةٍ يُخْرِجُهَا مِنْ لِسَانِهِ وَقَدْ يَقُولُهَا وَهُوَ جَاهِلٌ فَلَا يُعْذَرُ بِالْجَهْلِ وَقَدْ يَقُولُهَا وَهُوَ يَظُنُّ أَنَّهَا تُقَرِّبُهُ إِلَى اللَّهِ كَمَا ظَنَّ الْمُشْرِكُونَ خُصُوصًا إِنْ أَلْهَمَكَ اللَّهُ مَا قَصَّ عَنْ قَوْمِ مُوسَى مَعَ صَلَاحِهِمْ وَعِلْمِهِمْ أَنَّهُمْ أَتَوْهُ قَائِلِينَ اجعل لنا الها كما لهم الهه قال انكم قوم تجهلون
The second thing that you recognize now, if you've understood all of the introduction so far properly, is that you then recognize a great fear in of yourself. A great fear of this affair of shirk. Knowing now what it is, recognizing now what it is, then you have a great fear of ever falling into it, a great fear of ever being uh, encompassed by it or overcome by it. You have a great fear of that affair. فَإِنَّكَ إِذَا عَرَفْتَ أَنَّ الْإِنسَانَ يَكْفُرُ بِكَلِمَةٍ يُخْرِجُهَا مِنْ لِسَانِهِ If you recognize and you know now that a person may commit disbelief, kufr, due to a statement that exits from his mouth, due to a statement that exits from his mouth, he may become a disbeliever upon that. And maybe he may even say it upon ignorance. He may say that statement of kufr upon ignorance, and he may not be excused for that ignorance. And maybe he may say it believing that it's something which will bring him closer to Allah even. He may say something that is actually a word of kufr and shirk, believing that it's actually something that will bring him closer to Allah. Just like the mushrikun believed, when they called upon their deities, they believed that they would be seeking closeness to Allah. And the reality was their statements were statements of kufr and shirk calling upon the deceased, making dua to the dead, seeking their intercession. So maybe a person may say that word, believing it's actually going to bring him closer to Allah, but the reality is, it is kufr and shirk. Khususan, especially, this understanding of having fear of shirk, it will become especially clear to you when you recognize the example of uh, what Allah narrated to us regarding the people of Musa salam. If you have an understanding of the story of Musa salam and what Allah narrated to us regarding his people, even though they were believers and they were upon righteousness, and they were upon some level of knowledge. Yet despite that, as it is mentioned in the story, when they crossed the sea, and Pharaoh and his people were drowned, after they crossed, they came across a people worshipping all of these other deities, various deities besides Allah. And so they said to Musa alayhi salam, اِجْعَلْ لَنَا إِلَٰهًا كَمَا لَهُمْ آلِهَةً Make for us gods 
as they have gods. Make for us gods as they have gods. Qala innakum qawmun tajhaloon. He said, Musa said to them, Indeed you are a people who are ignorant. Meaning not knowing that reality yet regarding those affairs. And this is quoted in the hadith of Abu Waqid al-Layfi. When he mentioned, Kunna hadith ahdim bil-Islam. That when we were new to Islam, they had gone out with the Prophet to Hunayn. خَرَجْنَ مَعَ رَسُولِ اللَّهِ صَلَى اللَّهِ وَسَلَّمْ وَنَحْنُ حُدَثَاءُ عَهْدٍ بِالْإِسْلَامِ That we went out to the battle of Hunayn with the Prophet وسلم, and we were new to Islam at the time because they had just become Muslim after the conquering of Mecca which had just occurred previous to that. And so they became Muslim and almost immediately, very soon after, they went out with the Prophet to Hunayn. And so when they were going out, they said to the messenger, what? Make for us a tree, just like as they have this tree, whereby they hang their weapons upon for barakah. The mushrikun used to hang their weapons upon some trees for barakah and their shields and their swords and they would sit around the tree believing there's barakah to come from this tree onto their weapons and to them. So they said to the Prophet ﷺ, make for us a tree. Which tree? Is it possible? And so the Prophet ﷺ said to them, Allahu Akbar, innaha sunan. Allahu Akbar. This is the path of the people, as-sunan, the path that the people tread upon. قُلْتُمْ كَمَا قَالَ بَنُوا إِسْرَائِيلِ لِمُوسَى إِجْعَلْ لَنَا إِلَهًا كَمَا لَهُمْ آلِهًا You have said, just as the people of Musa said to him, make for us deities as they have deities. Of course, this does not mean that the companions were seeking shirk. Of course not. They were new to Islam and they were inquiring, learning about the aqidah and inquiring and the Prophet ﷺ explained to them this is incorrect. So the point being here, that even people who were with Musa ﷺ, and they were righteous, yet they made that statement, and Musa ﷺ told them that you are ignorant of this affair. And there are many examples, one of the best of them is mentioned regarding Ibrahim salam. Ibrahim salam. what is his status in Islam? Because to understand this example now coming up, we have to understand the status of Ibrahim salam in Islam. So what is the status of Ibrahim salam? Khalilullah, meaning he is the most beloved of Allah as the Prophet ﷺ was also. And his status in Islam on top of that as well. He is from the Ulul Azam, from the, the, the top prophets and messengers of the grounded nature. And what level is he within them? The second highest of them all after only the Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. 
and he is known as Abu Anbiya, the father of the prophets, known as an Ummah, known as a Qudwa. All of that status for Ibrahim alayhi salam. And yet, as it is mentioned, he made dua to Allah, وَجْنُبْنِي وَبَنِيَّ أَنَّ عَبُودَ الْأَصْنَامِ Protect me and my offspring from falling into the worship of the idols. The Salaf, they used to say, if Ibrahim alayhi salam is making this dua, وَجْنُبْنِي وَبَنِيَّ أَنَّ عَبُودَ الْأَصْنَامِ Protect me and my offspring from worshipping the idols. That my Lord, indeed, they have misguided many of the people. They have misguided many. Protect me and my offspring from the worship of these idols. This is Ibrahim making this dua. The Salaf said, if the likes of Ibrahim with his level of status, if the likes of Ibrahim alayhi salam, with his level of status, he is making this dua upon fear of falling into shirk, upon fear of falling into that worship of the idols, even though the prophets and messengers would not fall into shirk, but making this dua upon fear that his offspring may fall into that, then the Salaf said, if Ibrahim alayhi salam fears this upon himself with all of his status and rank, then who are the rest of us not to fear? Who are the rest of us to Ibrahim alayhi salam to think we are safe, we are muwahid, I'm upon tawheed, I'm salafi, nothing can attack me, nothing can overcome me. Ibrahim alayhi salam making the dua. They said, if Ibrahim was upon that fear, then who are you and I? Certainly we need to recognize that our hearts are between the fingers of Ar-Rahman and the heart of a person can change. And that is why in Arabic the word for heart is Qalb because Qalb in the language means something that changes and alternates. The word Qalb in Arabic something that changes and alternates. And that is the nature of the heart of a person. It changes and it alternates. One day upon one understanding, another day he's gone somewhere else. Another day he's been taken away by statements or actions somewhere else. So that is the nature of the heart of a person. And so you constantly make dua, asking Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to be established and to be firm upon the religion as the Prophet ﷺ used to do constantly. ثَبِّتْ قَلْبِي عَلَى As the Prophet used to make the dua, keep my heart firm upon your religion. ثَبِّتْ قَلْبِي Keep my heart firm upon your religion. And so he mentions the second benefit you learn from all of this is the benefit of fear. You have the benefit of joy. Joy that you've been guided to Islam. Joy that you've understood Tawheed. Joy that you recognize the reality of the Shahada. But at the same time, you experience and understand this fear 
from shirk and falling into shirk. And that's not something to be negligent over. Even when you give a simple example, the other book of a Shaykh Muhammad ibn Abdul Wahhab, Rahimallah Ta'ala, Kitab al-Tawheed. Kitab al-Tawheed has within it approximately 60 chapters. Each chapter deals with a particular topic regarding Tawheed and Shirk. So now, does everybody here know all of those 50-60 chapters and all of those 50-60 topics of Tawheed and Shirk? If we don't, then there's a possibility we may end up doing one of those things and falling into it without even knowing and realizing what it is. Without even knowing and realizing that's actually shirk. 50-60 chapters with 50-60 points in them. If we don't know those 50-60 points, maybe one of those we may even fall into without recognizing and without realizing. And that's why they say, مَا عَرَفْتُ I don't learn about the evil for the sake of the evil. You don't learn about evil shirk and bid'ah and those things for the sake of it. But you learn it for the sake of لِتَوَقِّيهِ So you can protect yourself from falling into it. You learn about shirk and what shirk is and the types of shirk and all the affairs of shirk in order to be able to avoid it and make sure you don't fall into it. You don't learn shirk for the sake of it, you learn it so you know what it is and you can keep your distance from it. You learn about the people of innovation and their bid'ah, not for the sake of it, but so that you know what that is and you can draw the line and make sure you don't cross over into it. Because a person who does not know what the evil is, then that person may well fall into the evil without even knowing it, may fall into innovation without even knowing it, fall into bid'ah without even recognizing it. So here the second point is that fear, the fear of that shirk. Then at that time, when you understand all of these points and you understand the fear of shirk, that's when this fear will really be increased inside of yourself. And that's when you will want to strive even more to make sure that you learn that which will protect you from that shirk will protect you from those evils and keep you within the boundaries of Tawheed. The Shaykh says in the explanation, Ali Shaykh, وَمِنْ أَسْبَابِ التَّخَلُّسِ مِنْ هَذَا صِدْقُ الْإِبْتِهَالِ إِلَى اللَّهِ وَسُؤَالِهِ التَّثْبِيتِ And one of the ways to protect yourself from those affairs of evil is to have that sincere humility before your Lord and to be sincerely asking and making dua to Allah constantly to keep your heart firm and established upon the right way. Just as it's mentioned in the Barzakh, 
يثبت الله الذين آمنوا بالقول الثابت في الحياة الدنيا وفي الآخرة that Allah will keep firm those who have iman he will keep them firm in where in both of those times in the barzakh and in this life too in this life keep you firm meaning upon the straight path in the afterlife keep you firm meaning at the time of the fitnatul qabr when the angels munkar and nakir black and blue in their appearance they come to you and ask you those questions that you are maintained and established upright in answering those questions at that time also so sincerity and humility before allah and dua then these are from the means of establishment upon the truth and then the Sheikh goes on to say, وَعَلَمْ أَنَّ اللَّهَ سُبْحَانَهُ مِنْ حِكْمَتِهِ لَمْ يَبْعَثْ نَبِيًّا بِهَذَا التَّوْحِيدِ إِلَّا جَعَلَ لَهُ أَعْدَاءً كَمَا قَالَ تَعَالَى وَكَذَلِكَ جَعَلْنَا لِكُلِّ نَبِيٍّ عَدُوًّا شَيَاطِينَ الْإِنْسِ وَالْجِنِّ يُوحِي بَعْضُهُمْ إِلَى بَعْضٍ here then he mentions know that from the great wisdom of Allah from the great wisdom of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is that he did not send any prophet calling with to this tawheed he did not send any prophet calling to this tawheed except that he also made enemies for those prophets. All of the prophets and messengers, they had enemies. Allah didn't send any prophet or messenger with this call to Tawheed, except that there were enemies against them. From the great wisdom of Allah, it was like that. And what is that? What can we understand from this? What are the points we could understand from this? that Allah made enemies to all of the prophets and messengers. There are a few points. Number one, that by having enemies, it made the truth even clearer. Because when you have an enemy coming against you and trying to fight against you and argue against you, and you crush his arguments with the truth that you have, then it makes the truth you have even clearer and even stronger in the eyes of the people. That is one benefit of it, that those enemies came against the prophets and messengers counteracting and claiming their intercession is okay and this is okay and this is in shirk. And then the messengers and the prophets refuted and rebuked their claims. It therefore made the truth that was with them even more established and clear and elevated to be known and to be seen. So that distinguishment, that distinction between the truth and the falsehood becomes clearer when enemies are there trying with their falsehood and failing. It makes the distinction even clearer of what the truth is and where it is and what the enemies with their falsehood are and where they are. The truth is clearly distinguished from falsehood even more so that is one of the points 
Similarly, from the points of having the enemies is that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala by way of those enemies coming against the prophets and messengers elevates the rank of those prophets and messengers, elevates the rank of the truth over and above that falsehood because victory is always to that truth over the falsehood. So Allah elevates this revelation, this sharia, this legislation that is given to the prophets and messengers over and above that falsehood that the opposers come with. Thirdly, from the benefits, that it strengthens the hearts of the people. When an opposer comes with doubts and that opposer is crushed, then the onlookers, they become strengthened in their belief in the truth even more. It strengthens the hearts of the people and the iman of the people that the truth overrides all of that falsehood. That falsehood will not override the truth. So when they come with their falsehood and it is destroyed, then that is something which increases the iman of the believers and strengthens the iman of the believers that those opposers and mushrikun and their shirk was not able to overcome the truth from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And one point they mention here, the scholars, when we talk about these enemies of the prophets and messengers, enemies can be of different types, even when you look at the creation, enemies from the jinn, enemies from the humans, shayateen of the humans and shayateen of the jinn. And the worse, more severe type are the shayateen of the humans. Shayateen, the devils of the humans are worse than the shayateen of the jinn. (coughs) Scholars, they mention this because the shayateen of the humans, they come to you, another human being like you, You feel at ease with them. They come and sit with you. They come and talk with you. They come and whisper to you. And they insert all types of doubts and misguidances and corruption into your heart. Whereas the shayateen of the jinn, their effect is limited in other ways. But the human, the shayateen of the humans, the level of corruption they can come and cause to other humans is greater in this misguidance and in this corruption and in this deviance and how they confuse the people away from the truth. The shayateen of the humans are more dangerous in that affair than the shayateen of the jinn. Um, and so this is something mentioned in the Quran. وَكَذَلِكَ جَعَلْنَا لِكُلِّ نَبِيٍّ that indeed we made for all of the prophets, every prophet, enemies, an enemy from the shayateen of the humans and the jinn. Uh, that they uh, narrate to each other or they uh, whisper to each other, they, they speak to each other that statement or those statements of incorrectness and falsehood and deviation upon the people. That is where we'll make a mark for today then. Any questions on that section or anything else so far? You have a lot of questions. 
Yesterday, part two carrying on now. Go on then. Just one question. Uh -huh. uh, is it correct that Mus is it correct that Muslim that Muslims should hate Israel? <laughs> is it correct? The kuffar, we know the kuffar and kuffar and shirk. We hate that. We hate kuffar. We hate shirk. We don't love kuffar, do we? We don't love shirk. We hate kuffar and we hate shirk. And the mushrikun similarly. But as the scholars have said, there are always two perspectives when it comes to this. One perspective is, of course, you hate kufr and shirk and the mushrikun. But then there is another perspective that this mushrik or these mushrikun upon their kufr and shirk, after some da'wah tomorrow, they may be your believing brothers and sisters. So there's always the perspective of da'wah along with the perspective of hating the kufr and shirk and the mushrikun you remember the perspective of da'wah that tomorrow though some of these may be from your believing brothers and sisters still so it is not like the khawarij and their understanding of these affairs that we hate kufr and shirk so let's go and do this that the other and bombings and everything that is from their deviance and their misguidance and their extremism There are two Najashis, which one? They say in, in the Seerah, as an easy answer, they say in the Seerah, both Najashis became Muslim. Some of them say it is possible even the other Najashi became Muslim as well. Because in Seerah, there are two that are mentioned. And they say even the other one, it's possible, some of them mention it, it's not confirmed, but possible even the other one became Muslim. That's mentioned by... Uh, Al-Maqdisi in the Mukhtasar al-Sirah. Anything else? Uh, in most profession in the UK, they are Muslims. So they fight for their, or they try to help the members to get maybe... You're going to say, is it permissible to join them? Something I'm going to say, I don't know, Allah alam. <laughs> Anything else? You know, normally if somebody asks a question, you don't make it first person. You don't want to expose yourself what you've just done. You say, you know, if somebody prays Asr and then go, on, but anyway, now you've done it. Uh -huh. You prayed Asr outside the masjid? On the property, not that part of the masjid. So you mean the mosque was completely full because of all these gaps and things like this? The mosque was full. Yeah, no space inside at all, no capacity left. So you prayed outside. In, in, in the books of fiqh, they mention this topic about the jama'ah overflowing outside of the mosque. And the basic condition is that the rows have to be connected. If the rows are connected, then it carries on as the jama'ah. Like in Hajj time in Mecca, they go outside the mosque onto the courtyard, they go outside of the courtyard next to the hotels, they go outside of the hotels onto the roads, way up there. And it's all okay because every single row you carry on walking will carry on connecting until you get to the imam. So if the rows are all connected, then it carries on. So here imagine now, for example, uh, 
if the imam, for example, was out here and it carries on through the corridor, carries on outside, this door is opened up and they carry on out there, that's an easy example. If that door was open there and the row carried on outside there, connected here, it's all full, it would count. They are in the jama'ah. If the row is connected through the mosque, in that type of situation, I don't know exactly the, the, where it would be, how you would stand, where the people are inside of the mosque, but if you are considered joining on and there's not a big gap and the, the people inside are just there on the other side and you're just here, if you are generally connected, you're together, then it counts you with the jama'ah. But some of them in the books of fiqh even talk about 100 meters. Obviously these days 100 meters isn't going to work. But if you're generally right there at the entrance, just outside, you're joining on because the capacity is full, then insha'Allah, the rows, as long as they are connected, it counts. If they aren't, there's a break. Like now imagine this mosque, uh, uh, it's full to the end, and somebody goes and stands outside of the car park area on uh, 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 Waterloo Dudley, which one is this? Dudley. Dudley. They go stand on Dudley Street up there, past this car park area. All this car park is empty. So now on that road over there, they wouldn't count as part of the jama'ah. There's a huge gap in between breaking them from the rows. But if they were right next to the mosque coming out of this door here, connected, then that's connected. Mm. That's why in the haram, the clock tower, when they pray in the clock tower following the imam, it's incorrect. Because half of the time the haram is full and the rows are coming out. But if they aren't coming out all the way up to the clock tower joining it, if they aren't joining all the way and you're praying in the clock tower following the imam and the rows are only coming halfway, you can see them, they've stopped them, there's a gap to the hotel, you're not connected to them. If it's completely full and they're connected all the way, sometimes it is all the way into the clock tower, you can be praying in your hotel and you're praying in the jama'ah. Hmm. So, is it permissible um, to give prizes for, like, as a competition? So, for example, you have a group of people and you say, you know, whoever can do the most of such or such in a minute or five minutes will get a prize. Is that permissible? There are some narrations about this topic. You find it as well in the, book of, uh, in the books of hadith towards the end about the musabaqat and where it is permissible to give prizes upon. But simple things like this, uh, a small prize on somebody doing, uh, having some competition in, in some Islamic affair, it's not a problem and it is done. It is done by the scholars. You have competitions, whoever can memorize. You get a book, you get this, you get that. Small things like this aren't a problem. This isn't considered like, uh, you know, like the, the tournaments and prizes or different types of things like that. Simple, small prizes like this, they do it and it's permissible. What if we used to do is like, for example, for young adults or children to do like, you know, press-ups or, you know, something Allah, Allah, I don't know about that, but the Islamic affairs, they mention about Islamic affairs, like they used to do it in, in Medina, in the Dawrat and everything, competitions for memorization, competitions for who can memorize all the mutun and come and read it to get a prize for Islamic knowledge like that because one of the definitions they give is prizes have to be something which is of the benefit of Islam. Some of the scholars mention that. So with knowledge and all these affairs, all of it is the benefit of Islam. People studying, learning, memorizing, competing to memorize. That's all good and beneficial. As is horse riding and other things and archery. These are all benefits for Islam. So some of them say it has to be something of, of usefulness. In addition, sorry, because you mentioned that. What if it's for a youth club and the benefit is that youth club, the selling is there and it's down to the youngsters that are coming through. So, you know, I'm trying to make it more attractive for them to come, you know what I'm saying, and be around selling etc. Maybe. Well, we can uh, investigate those affairs and ask. Exactly.
the seniors, the you can ask some of the scholars, etc. Yad in Arabic, the word Yad, linguistically in Arabic, is all the way from your shoulder down to your hand. All of this is Yad, linguistically in Arabic. Then, of course, each part has its own names. There are Adod, all the various other names as well for the various parts. But overall, all of this can be Yad. So now, for example, when they say cut the hand of the one who steals with the uh, uh, conditions and everything in place, you don't chop off his whole arm up here. Because you have evidences telling you and indicating to you it's only from there. So as for how do we come to a conclusion that the hand of Allah and the attributes is it's, it's how, how do we, how do we, that it's not all of this and it's no, just how do we come to the conclusion that we translate as hand? A bit, no, because in English, uh, uh, I mean, the alternative you're saying is to translate as arm. That's the alternative. Yeah. So the, the, because hand. In Arabic, all of this can be hand. All of this is defined as a hand. But then you have the specifics of where a hand is for every relevant situation for the one who steals, for the one who makes wudu, etc. And so in English, Allah Alam, that it all comes down to the usage of the word and terminology. But hand is the word used, but it doesn't matter really because whether it was the word hand or it was the word arm, it would be the explanation that mattered. So in Arabic, we would explain this is all yad technically. And then there are all different parts. In English, just because we don't have the word being used in the same way, then you could say, okay, hand, stroke, arm, for example, but it means this and that. That's the intention behind what we're saying. So English words, you can't really pinpoint English words and why an English word is like that. You have to pinpoint it on the Arabic. That's why aqidah is very difficult to translate into English. Names and attributes especially. Very difficult to explain those things in English. Because in Arabic, there's a certain clear understanding to something. In English, it isn't. That word doesn't represent what is meant in Arabic always. Anything else? Yeah, Sad, in regards to Hershey's question about praying outside, you spoke about um, the masjid being full. But, um, there's a masjid, Sad, where if, it's, if you don't wear a mask, you have to pray outside. No, I mean, that, that, that's not a necessity anyway, because we know that the law of the land or the rules of the land don't request that anyway. The mask is not an obligation upon every single individual. Like I was mentioning yesterday, it's in the government guidelines that the cleric who comes in and delivers the sermon doesn't have to wear a mask. That's in the government guidelines. So I'm allowed to be sitting here without anything on as per the government guidelines. Just like somebody who has some medical condition, somebody has some medical condition, somebody has this, a list of exemptions they've written themselves. The government has written a list of exemptions themselves. So no mosque should say it is obligatory upon every individual that they have to wear a mask, otherwise you can't come in because even the government hasn't said that. Even the government hasn't said that. They've said you wear masks, it's obligatory, mandatory in the mosques. But then there's a list of exceptions. If somebody genuinely is, we talked about this yesterday. If somebody is genuinely one of those exceptions, then you've got an exception per the guidelines of the government. If you're not, 
one of those exceptions and you don't want to wear a mask, then you're causing yourself problems with that mosque. You're causing yourself problems with that mosque. They're implementing the policies. They're not doing anything wrong. So if you haven't got exemptions, then you should implement the policy and wear the masks there. If the, if the mosque then says, no, everybody cannot come in, or anybody who hasn't got one cannot come in, you can explain to them. But even the government doesn't say that I am genuinely an accept, uh, exemption. I've got asthma, I've got this, I've got that. You can explain to them the government even allows me to come in without a mosque, without a mask, without, with my exemptions in place. So that has to be understood. What time is Isha, by the way? Quarter two. What time is that then? Soon? Okay. Mm. There's a message that combines Zuhur with Asr and then Makhrib with Isha later on. Mm. So I understand that the Makhrib with Isha, but I've not seen is it permissible to pray with Zuhur combined? For what reason? They combine for what reason? Due to what's going on and. Just because of this situation? Yeah. I've not heard of any scholars say you can combine because of this situation. Well, there is no reasoning for combining due to this situation. Combining occurs in illness, it occurs with rain, it occurs with various reasons. But this, I've not heard any of the senior scholars saying this, just because of this COVID thing, it's now a, a reason to combine the prayers. They've said, put the gaps in, you can have the gaps, that's the uh, uh, photo of the permanent committee. You can wear the masks when you're praying, those kinds of things they've given the fatwas. But I don't know any fatwa about saying combine the prayers because of this. Mm. We'll have to stop there then. And we'll resume next week then inshallah ta'ala. Uh, now just normal time after 8 p.m. now we're okay now. Maghrib is early, Isha is later. So we'll carry on 8 p.m. inshallah ta'ala.